chapter is 1 John. It's the first chapter, starting at verse 1. The incarnation of the word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Adam, for the worship. How are we doing this morning, church? It's a new term, and we're starting a new series on this letter of 1 John in the Bible. And 1 John is not John 1. It's different, and you'll get confused. The best way to find 1 John is to go right to the back of the Bible, and at the back we've got Revelation. And then if you go back past Revelation, you get to Jude, and then you get to the three letters that John wrote. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And why spend time with 1 John? Because we live in a confusing and anxious world. And this letter has got some really clear advice for us as God's church that John has given to us so that we might follow the way of Jesus. So, it's right at the back of the Bible, pages 1225 to 1228. You can sit down and read it in about 45 minutes or an hour. It's just five chapters. So, you might want to do that as we start this series and just get to look at what it says there. It gives us a clear vision of who Jesus is and, what he, and who he wants us to be. It was written at a time of challenge and dispute, a time of change within the early church. And it was a time of danger. With any organization, when the initial visionary, the person who sets up the organization, when they stop leading that organization, then there's a chance it will fail and it will lose its path. It will go off in a different direction. Jesus has formed the disciples to go out and start the early church. And he's left his Holy Spirit, which is a massive, massive advantage. But now this letter is written at the next point of change. As all of the direct disciples of Jesus are leaving this world and going on to be with him in heaven. And so this is the end of the age of the apostles. And so John is writing this with the authority of those who've learned directly from Jesus to the church to make sure that the church follow the ways of Jesus. And we're in a time, as, our, as Jesus' church here today in our nation, where we need to get back to what Jesus asks us to be. 
We're in a time where in our nation, the church has seen decline and decay. But God's not finished with his church. We believe that, don't we? If we don't believe that, then why are we here? He's not finished with his church, is he? Victoria, give us an amen for that. An amen for that. Amen, absolutely. He's not finished with his church. We're here and we've got lots still to do. And we should be excited about that. We should be looking forward to that. Because we've still got his blueprint. We've got all that we need here in his word and through his Holy Spirit. We're a church based on his word and his spirit. We've got all the things that we need. And one of the things that the COVID pandemic showed, one of the positive things was that the church, churches who survived the best, who recovered the strongest, are the churches who followed God's word and his spirit, who made disciples. And those churches didn't struggle. Other churches found it really hard to recover because they weren't doing the things that Jesus wanted them to do. If church is just a habit, then during the pandemic, people realized there were lots of other things to fill their time with. And so they haven't gone back to church. But God is not finished with his church. That's what we believe here. And that's what we're looking forward to in the future, that the best days of the church are still to come. So, let's get some basic information about uh, these letters uh, into our heads so that we can then move on. So, John wrote these three letters to the churches around the region uh, where he is the elder within the church. He has authority to lead these churches. The other two letters are much shorter and more intimate, but one John has five chapters of teaching that help us to grow. So let's do some basic stuff about the who, where, what, when, and why. So who was, who was this letter written by? It was, he was, it was written by the Apostle John, by the disciple John. If you look at the window at either end of the church, you get a picture of John. He's the right-hand man in uh, this end. This end's probably the easiest one uh, to look at. He's always shown as a young man because he's the youngest of the apostles. He's thought he was the youngest, the beloved disciple who laid, uh, sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper, laid his head on Jesus' breast and on his chest. And John was there as a young man at that point. And John was the one who stayed with Jesus at the cross. John was the one who uh, Jesus handed the responsibility of Mary over to. And so where was this written? It was written in Ephesus, and uh, John initially in Acts spends time with Peter, and the two of them in Acts, they go around Jerusalem and they heal the man at the beautiful gate. They get brought up before the officials and the chief priests, but then they go their separate ways. Peter goes off to Rome, and John goes to Ephesus, and Ephesus was on the edge of Turkey uh, and in the ancient province of Asia. Can you see it there in the center? Uh, So it was at the end of a great trade route that came from the east and it was a great port city, a hub of communication with lots of other places around. It's still there today. You can go and visit it. There are lots of ruins there. On the left is the 
the library in Ephesus, and on the right is one of the small amphitheaters, the place where Paul uh, spoke to the people of Ephesus. The Ephesus is a real place. It's, uh, it's still there. You can go and visit it. So in and around Ephesus, there were churches that St. Paul had planted. And in Acts, in AD 52, so just 20 years after Jesus died, Paul planted the church, and this church grew and developed. And then Paul leaves. He writes the letter to the Ephesians later, and then John takes over as the elder in Ephesus. And so this letter is, what is it? It's a letter to encourage and equip those churches around Ephesus, those churches that were growing and developing, that John was helping to lead. It was teaching and correcting what they believed and how they followed Jesus. And when was it written? Well, Unfortunately, John didn't put a date at the top of the letter, as we are taught to do. That would have been helpful, perhaps. But it's thought that it was written around 90 to 95 AD, so 60 years after the cross. So if John was just a young man, say 20, when he saw Jesus die, he would be about 80, coming to the end of his life. He would have been the elder in that area, the one who had authority He continues to lead and guide the church in the city. And why was it written? It was written, as we said, because the age of the apostles is ending. And John wants to make sure that the church will follow what Jesus has taught. John's already written his gospel that gives us a clear picture of who Jesus is. John's written that gospel so that we can see who Jesus is in the seven signs that he does and the seven sayings of Jesus. Of all the things, all the miracles, John picks just seven signs that point to who Jesus is. And then John brings all of the teaching down into those seven sayings that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the gate and the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. And he is the true vine. John wants people to see who Jesus is in his gospel. And now in this teaching, he wants them to follow what he taught. So the gospel is a great companion to this letter. And it's got lots of the same themes and ideas within it. And it might be good to go and read that again. Uh, That takes a bit longer to read. But it's always worth going back and looking at John's gospel. So looking at this letter... It will help us to become the church that Jesus wants us to be. And that's why we're looking at it in this term. We're in a battle, just as that first church was in a battle. We are now a minority within our community, just as that original church was a minority, a small minority within the society around it. We have the same enemy, the same battles to fight. We have the same things to learn from this letter. So the letter starts with a prologue, uh, a few introductory verses that help to set the scene, just as John's gospel starts with a prologue. John starts his gospel with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We all know that from the Christmas readings that we 
here each year. This starts with a similar prologue, but it's got a different focus. John wants to see that he's writing about the same word with the authority of those who've spent years in the presence of this word. So when he speaks, he speaks about we, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched. And he's speaking about the apostles, what we saw, what we, who were there, touched and, and felt. We mustn't forget that this is the scandal of the Christian faith, that we believe that God who's bigger than this whole universe, that all we can imagine, God came down to earth as a human being, stepped into our existence, lived amongst us, dwelt amongst us, took on human form so that he could save us and redeem us and rescue us from all that was holding us from having a real relationship with him. When you've been with someone, when you've met them, then you can see them in a different way. And John wants to make sure that their being with him is passed on to those people around him. So who knows who this is? Hands up if you know who this is. Penny, who's this? You put your hand up. (laughs) The old archbishop, that's right, that's right. It's not... Rowan Williams. It's not Rowan Atkinson. That's completely different. This is Rowan Williams. And he was the archbishop before last. And he was um, a man who loved poetry and philosophy. And he loved theology. So he had uh, lots going on in his head. And some of the newspapers liked to portray him in a very bad way. So some of them called him the beardy lefty, the bearded lefty. Others called him the beardy weirdo. You can see he has um, impressive uh, eyebrows and an impressive beard and they portrayed him as this beardy weirdo. Sometimes they reported what he said as very complicated and dense and difficult to understand. But I met Rowan Williams once, just the once. Soon after he was archbishop, he came to our college where I was training. So it was quite a while ago. And instead of having lunch with the lecturers, he had lunch with the students. And I got to sit next to Rowan Williams while we shared the sandwiches that the um, kitchen had produced over lunchtime. And we asked him what it was like being archbishop. And he said, well, it can be quite difficult. He said the thing that's been most difficult is that we've had to move from Wales to London and my teenage daughter has told me that it's ruined her whole life moving from Wales to London and it's quite difficult when we go to McDonald's if I'm the archbishop and and somebody sees me and I'm there with my teenage daughter it's quite tricky because lots of judgments swirl around about an archbishop being in McDonald's, but that's where teenagers want to go, isn't it? And if he wants to spend time with his teenage daughter, that's where he wanted to take her. He was a real person. He was a good man with a good heart. And when I read those things that the papers would print about all of the difficult theoretical stuff that he would say, I'd remember this conversation that I had with him. That he was a real person with a real family 
And he knew what real life was about. And can you see how for John, who sat next to Jesus at a meal, people are telling the stories that Jesus has told. People are saying the things that Jesus said. And John was there when he said them. John knows the tone that Jesus uses when the woman stops him uh, by dragging hold of his cloak and he's trying to get to the official's daughter who's already died. Jesus, Jesus speaks and John knows the tone of voice he used when she interrupted him. John wants to explain who Jesus is because he's been with him. He wants to tell them what Jesus was like. John has this knowledge and he wants to share it because he has seen and heard and touched Jesus. On Friday, this last week, some research came out called Talking Jesus. And it's a a group of questions that were asked in a big survey, asked in 2015 and repeated in 2022. And one of the questions they asked 4,000 people was, was Jesus a historical person? And the results of these, in 2015, 61% of people thought Jesus was a historical person. In 2022, 54% of people think that Jesus is a historical person. The enemy is winning this battle and we are losing it. If only just over half of the people out there in our city, in our nation, believe that Jesus actually existed. That is incredible. There is almost no, well, there are no credible historians who would tell you that Jesus didn't exist. Every historian of any worth knows that Jesus existed. There's more evidence for Jesus existing than for Julius Caesar existing or Cleopatra existing or Boadicea existing. People believe those people existed, but they don't believe that Jesus existed. We are in a battle and the enemy is winning. 7% drop in seven years of the people who think that Jesus actually existed. John is able to say that this life appeared and lived amongst us. We have seen and testified to you and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And these writings in this book are credible, are reliable. He gave a reason why, John gave a reason why Jesus came so that he could bring life to the world. He brought eternal life to us so that we could be drawn again into a relationship with God. He came to fix that broken relationship. He came to make us right with God through one act of obedience. He overturns the disobedience of humanity. And the false teaching of the early church was trying to diminish what Jesus had done and try to diminish who Jesus was. At that point, they still accepted that Jesus had existed. But they didn't want him to be the Lord. They didn't want him to be God. They wanted a diminished faith. And that's still the same danger for our church today. 
People want a consumer faith. They want to pick and choose the bits of what Jesus said that help them so that they get all the benefits of a saviour, but they don't have a Lord. That's the big danger that our church faces today. That we reduce Jesus so that he becomes comfortable, so that he becomes manageable. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is not one to be contained. If Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Jesus is Lord. This is the message that we have to pass on. This is the person who we worship, who we celebrate. And if Jesus is not Lord of all your life, if you're having struggles and difficulties, we have prayer ministry, a prayer ministry team at the end of the service, and they'd be happy to pray with you for strength to overcome those areas of your life where Jesus is not Lord. That word about a broom sweeping out the rubbish Come to prayer ministry if there's rubbish in your life that needs sweeping out. Because Jesus is Lord. He is a real person who lived and died. And we have his words and his teaching to follow. It's what John experienced. It's a direct result of the resurrection. What happened after Jesus rose, he met with Thomas and Thomas declares to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He sees who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't correct him and say, no, Thomas, you've got it wrong. He accepts that he is the Lord, that he is God. Jesus is Lord and God, the Son of God who came and dwelt among us, the word of life who has appeared. Jesus is Lord. This is what we claim at the center of our faith. Jesus is the way to a new life, a life that brings us hope and peace and joy. This is the good news for us and for our world. Jesus is Lord. He is the risen Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's the one who leads us to new life. So we can say now and always, Alleluia, Christ is risen. Should we try that again? Alleluia, Christ is risen. Indeed. Alleluia. Let's stand and let's pray as we think about Jesus being Lord of our lives. Lord, we want to make you the Lord of our lives, but we know that so often we fail. We pray that you would help us to see that everything comes from you, that all that we have is given to us by you. So, Lord, we offer you now everything that we hold on to. All that we possess, we surrender to you. All that there is in our future, all that our future holds, we place into your hands. For you are the Lord of our lives. Give us only your love and your grace. With these, we will be rich enough. Be with us, Lord. In the power of your Holy Spirit, be with us now and always. Amen. Let's sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.